Most of us don't want to commit murder. That's my weird hypothesis about people. Welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall. Today we are learning about the Donner Party. And we are learning about it with Chelsea Weber-Smith, host of American Hysteria, one of my favorite podcasts, and probably one of your favorite podcasts if you're a fan of this one. You just might not know that it's one of your favorite podcasts yet, but it will be. Both Chelsea's show and this show are often about American folklore and the stories that we grow up kind of knowing, but that maybe change completely when we learn the details. And this is one of those stories. So I was really happy to go farther back in time than we often do and to have Chelsea try and separate myth from fact, and also to look at the areas where that has become impossible, because that's one of the things we like to talk about as well. We did an episode on the Dyatlov Pass incident not long ago, and this is a survival story as well, and a story about people who found themselves in circumstances that it might be impossible for us to imagine, and what they did in those conditions. And I think These are certainly stories that are always interesting to me. It's part of why I watch so many horror films. I think there's something for all of us in asking ourselves how we would react and how we would like to think we would react and maybe the distance between those two things when we think about situations like this one. We have really tried to stay out of goriness for its own sake. That's kind of a theme in the show that when we talk about scary stuff, our goal isn't to scare you for the sake of it, but we also aren't trying to hide the scary stuff either. So if you're not in a place where you want to hear about people in survival situations, extreme physical duress, or cannibalism, this isn't going to be a good episode for you. But that said, our focus in this episode is really on the people who were involved in the story and what we can learn about them now, what their relationships were like, what they were trying to do to maintain some kind of a social order in the face of annihilation. And we want to talk about the people and then what happened to them is secondary to that in our telling. I had some technical difficulties with my recording equipment this week, so this episode is an even more valiant effort than usual by our producer, Carolyn Kendrick, and it came out sounding very close to normal, but again, a little bit different than what you're used to. And as always, we have bonus episodes at patreon.com slash you're wrong about, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. All right, everybody, we're going out with the Donner Party. I'll see you on the trail. Welcome to You're Wrong About, where we tell you how the West was won. Perfect. (laughs) With me today is Chelsea Weber-Smith, legendary friend of the show. You were with us to talk about killer clowns, and now you're going to tell us about the Donner Party. And Chelsea, you have a podcast as well for the uninitiated. What is your podcast and what happens over there? Over there. Well, it's American Hysteria is the name, and we cover things like moral panics and conspiracy theories, urban legends, and general American fantastical thinking. And now we're also saying national misunderstandings. Yeah. So we kind of cover everything from the Puritans to the present and try to draw some through lines 
through history. So I would love to start by telling you what I know or think I know about what the Donner Party is, and then you can just tell me what happened. Perfect. What do you know about the Donner Party? So my understanding is that the Donner Party, I think this happened in the late 1840s. It was basically a wagon train that comprised primarily two pretty prosperous families, the Donners and the Reeds. So you also sometimes hear people referring to the Donner-Reed party, which is very confusing because Donner-Reed was in It's a Wonderful Life. Right, right, right. Very <laughs> easy to mix those two up. That basically they were a wagon train that set out to go. I forget what their starting point was, but that their goal was to end up in California and that they went over the Sierra Nevada mountains which is where Chris Pratt lives with his clone daughter in Jurassic World Dominion. Wow. And it looked very chilly in that movie. (laughs) Basically, there had been a lot of wagon trains that had taken this route and everything had been fine. And therefore, people were like, maybe a little bit overly casual about it. They were like, we'll be fine. I mean, I think it was it reminds me a little bit of like, Stuff you hear about, like the Franklin Expedition, where they're like, we're going to find the Northwest Passage or the North Pole or whatever, and we're going to bring a piano to do it because we just (laughs) think we'll be fine. (laughs) It's the American way. It is. Yeah. And also the British way. Well, that's our mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that basically things did not work out for them. They were caught by weather. I believe they were just like stranded over the winter and just had no food. What I'm curious about primarily is whether it is still open to debate the degree of cannibalism that took place. Because of course, the famous, why this is famous is not because these were people who starved while trying to travel west in a wagon train, but that they resorted to cannibalism. And I've heard it said, the last I heard, there was a fair amount of ambiguity about like, did it even happen or did it happen to the extent that we tend to imagine it happened but like that's why we talk about it i think is because we have this this idea of like essentially that we cherish stories that seem like outliers to us and like this individual extreme of human behavior when actually they probably represent something that isn't as rare as we would like to believe Can we start kind of just with a little context of what's going on at this time? Yes, please. Okay. We're going to meet Lansford Hastings, and he is the man who wrote about the shortcut. Ah. Okay. And the shortcut will be their great demise. The Hastings Cutoff, it's called. So Lansford Hastings wrote this book. The book was used as a guide. It was called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. And it was used as a guide that everybody used when they were going to Oregon. And it was basically also him trying to convince people to go to California. The reason being that he had a lot of land there. (laughs) It was in the middle of the Mexican-American War. So Lansford Mm -hmm. Hastings, along with this man named John Sutter, who runs Sutter's Fort, which is the goal Mm -hmm. of the Donner Party. Just follow me here. They want to create a bloodless revolution. So they want to convince as many white people to come to California as possible to sort of wrest control of the area, right? So that's that's part of what's happening here, okay? So they're like, hey, we got a shortcut. Come do our political bidding. Wow. In fact, I believe only one group had ever crossed the cutoff 
And the Donner Party is made up of 80 people in wagon trains, oxen. I mean, it's a huge thing. Anyway, he's convincing people to go this direction. So then the Donner Party is really into this idea. Jacob Donner, along with James Reed, who you mentioned, these are our two main dudes, right? So yeah. they read this mm-hmm. book, Lansford Hastings' descriptions. Is, it's basically like candy will fall from the sky and like, you know, your flowers mm-hmm. will grow to the heavens and, you know, you'll have everything you could ever dream of. Mm-hmm. That's our like very basic context. This is the 1840s and this is a couple years before the gold rush will change the entirety of California. So, huh. But yeah, I would love to meet some of our people. We have James Reed, who is kind of the de facto leader for most of it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it's like, is it the Donner Party? Is it the Reed Party? It's all very boring because they're switching up leaders. And, you know, this is a long trip. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a lot of time for things to happen. But James Reed, he's like bullheaded. He kind of boasts himself up as like a big, rich dude. He has a wagon that's two stories that his daughter calls the Pioneer Palace car. It has its own stove inside. Like it's, I think of him as like, a CEO who's going to Burning Man in one of those like fancy camps, you know, right. like he's glamping his way across. That seems structurally unsound. Yeah. You know? it, yes. Yes. But and secretly he is broke, <laughs> you know. Mm. Yeah. The, the Donner Party is a bit of a fire fest, actually, because <laughs> <laughs> to go on this trip, you had to be able to afford it, mm. which seems, you know, wild. It's like sending out rich people into the unknown woods, but it was the only people who could afford it unless you were a teamster or a hired hand. That's such a good point. So like the people who are going into this a situation where they have to think on their feet and problem solves are also the people who demographically are most likely to be like, somebody else will do it for me. It'll work out all by itself somehow. It always does. But I will say, you know, it depends on the people because there are eventually there are 80 people in the Donner Party when they're stranded. And, it you know, it fluctuates. And it's like, I think a lot of people think, oh, the Donner Party is a family. It's small. And wagon trains are enormous and they span miles and they kind of come in and out. And, you know, we just don't actually realize and you had to be so tough. And so these people, though they were middle class or upper class, also mm-hmm. that meant something different because they were living in rural areas. Right. So they were hard workers. Mm. They're fleeing like typhus and cholera and just like mm. horrible shit in the Midwest. It, it just was horrible. I'm sure that everybody who does this tends to have the same thought of just like, let's start over. Yeah. I'm sure I can find some space that nobody's using. And if they are, I can construct a very elaborate narrative about how it doesn't matter. And then I can create my own society and it'll be better than the last one. That's exactly true. And I mean, the again, Hastings guide book was just basically saying land is up for grabs. You know, it was so cheap. They just wanted to get people there. And then whoever got there first, they got a bunch of land. And then, of course, they're going to sell it off however they want. And then they're going to get rich. So they're fleeing this like pretty hard life in the Midwest, despite them mm-hmm. being, you know, middle class or but in California, you know, it, gold is going to grow from your trees. I mean, lemons are. Have you seen the price of lemons? I haven't even wanted to look. Kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, once the gold rush happened, that was like the people who were there were charging like and I am not kidding you. Hundreds of dollars for a single egg. They were like, look at search pricing. I'm sorry. <laughs> OK, so James Reed, we got a little off track here, but then we got 
he's got his whole family, right? Virginia Reed is his wife. Mm-hmm. So then we got Jacob Donner. He's kind of like, duh, 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 you know, is how I think of him. He's just kind of like way nicer than James Reed. He ends up being elected because he's here to make friends. Exactly. He is here to make friends and just kind of a benign guy. And then his wife is Tamsin Donner, who I think is my hero of the story mm. with, of course, the admittance that all of this is problematic <laughs> for what's going mm-hmm. on. But Tamsin Donner, she was an abolitionist and wanted to move out of an area where it was still legal to have slaves. So she, her shtick was collecting plants and drawing all the new <laughs> new foliage and then sending it back so that people could learn about what was happening. And she was a school teacher who just really believed in education for everyone. And she was just a badass. She she did all kinds of stuff. She lived a really hard life before she lost her husband and kid, before she married this much older Donner man. Mm. So we have our wagons heading out. One of them has two stories. Where are we leaving from? They are leaving from kind of different places, but most are kicking off from Independence, Missouri. Okay. Right now in our story, everybody's gathering together. Donner and Reed party are like, hey, we want to do this. Let's let's band together. Let's put something in the newspaper. See who else wants to go with mm-hmm. us. Gather everybody together. Mm. And then here's something real fun. You know who wanted so bad with all his Bless his little heart. Mm-hmm. Abe Lincoln wanted to go with the Donner Party. James Reed was his like best, best friend. And he was like <gasps> so close to going. But of course, his wife said no. Mary Lincoln, she was always very smart. Listen to your wife, Abe Lincoln. <laughs> and Abe Lincoln did not do anything Mary Todd did not say yes to. So wow. the day that the Donner Party kicks off, he is nowhere to be seen. And, you know, Reed is like, well, where's my best friend, Abe? He's not even going to come and say goodbye to me. And you know what he's doing? He was too sad. He was too sad to go. So he just went riding on trails with his horse, Tom. Oh, Abe Lincoln. And I would imagine having like a lot of survivor's guilt about this potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you think about like who would have been president if he had Ooh. died yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Leaving independence. All right. Everybody is stoked. People are seeing this as a grand adventure. And with that very specific mm-hmm. American mindset that like nothing bad's going to happen. This is divine providence. I think the story is a story of hubris and of the confidence that comes from mm. a colonized nation built by rogue individuals that had to be people who were ready to take risks that were completely outrageous. Right. I guess going into nature with an attitude of like, that's mine, that's mine, that's definitely mine. Yep, definitely. I love the idea of the sublime in poetry where, you know, it's like beautiful terror. So you like come upon these new landscapes and you're overwhelmed by like just like the majesty of something, but being so fearful of it because it's unknown. And like Mm -hmm. just to imagine like seeing animals you did not know existed because it's not like you're like, oh, here's the guidebook and all the fun things that are going to happen. My like picture book. It's like you had Hastings Guide and nothing else. And then you're just there you are. Well, you and I are both from the West Coast. And I do think there's like this funny thing where when you grow up in the West and then you see the rest of the country, there's so many things that you don't have that are extremely exciting, like diners, obviously. 
But then in terms of landscape, like I remember going to the mountains in New England and being like, that's cute. You think these are mountains. Right, right, right. <laughs> yep. And they're wonderful. And I couldn't climb them, but like two in Oregonian, they're hills. And so imagining having that experience in reverse with no precedent for it, with no indication of what it would be like. I know that it had for some people, you know, some degree of a humbling effect to like mitigate that sense of like, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Yeah. And I think if you read letters, I mean, they're very humbled because they really believe in like God, Mm. the beauty and the majesty and the smallness of of humanity is all remarked upon while they also barrel forward to take as much land as they possibly can with no consideration for, you know, what they consider to be people who are not fully human. Right. All right. So most people who are going on the Oregon Trail or California Trail, which far less people are going to California at this point, Mm -hmm. very few, but Everybody says that you cannot leave independence later than May 1st, okay? Because you're crossing the mountains Mm -hmm. where there is snow and you have to get across before the snow comes. Mm -hmm. The Donner Party did not leave until May 12th. Oh, you guys. Tourist season. Tourist season, which says, uh, let me do it on my own time. I'm sure it'll all work out. And you're not always right, Taurus. (laughs) 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 But you are a lot. Not this time. So they're going along. And at this point, it's fun. They're having fun. They're playing music every night. They're dancing. They're circling the wagons. They have so much food they packed. They're cooking these amazing dinners. And everybody thinks that, you know, this is it. This is how it's going to be. And I mean, they're walking like 15 miles a day. A lot of people were walking rather than riding in the wagons. So, you know, it's Mm -hmm. grueling work, but, you know, they're not to the mountains yet. So they're still in the Midwest. And then something happens that I think is like our moment in the horror movie that sets the tone, right? Like somebody hits a deer. Mm. James Reed's mother dies and she's already really old. Nobody really expected Mm -hmm. her to make it. The doctors were like, you're not going to make it if you do this. Mm -hmm. But then when she dies, they all gather under a tree. They bury her. Mm-hmm. Everything's still fine. They keep going. They have to ford a river. Things are starting to get a little more challenging, but it's still a grand adventure. And then Tamsin mm-hmm. Donner writes in a letter to her sister, probably the most famous Donner quote that you will hear in everything. And she says, I could never believe we could have traveled so far with so little difficulty. Hmm. Indeed, if I do not experience something far worse than I have yet done, I shall say the trouble is all in getting started. They arrive together at the first fort that they're going to. So there's going to be like a series of forts. And can you actually explain what a fort is? Because my like field trip knowledge is scanty at this stage. Yeah, it's basically a place where people can go and rest and renew their supplies and meet with other people Hmm. and hang out. Like a truck stop. (laughs) Yes, it's it's like a really big truck stop. Because to me, Ford implies that it's like protected, that it's like some kind of military outpost. But is that I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think it's just used. I could be wrong, though. So I I don't know a ton about forts, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) But now I'll go learn. Unfortunately. 
Unfortunately. Uh, ha, unfortunately. <laughs> but basically, you're just trying to reach each fort. Like, it's it's a market where you're like, okay, now I'm at Fort Laramie. Yeah. Now I can up my supplies. We've made it far enough. We, If we need to buy oxen, if we need to buy flour, if we need to, you know, get more water. Because they have to carry everything. If you need to go to the bathroom and get a Slim Jim and get, like, an, a sweet tea with nugget ice. We're not yeah. stopping until California, so we need to go now. <laughs> <laughs> so they arrive there and this sarah is where they meet their harbinger and their mm. harbinger is a man named james Kleiman. Okay. he's like this chiseled rough real buff mountain man who's pretty famous for his travels over the mountains and his writings and he's just he's a man mm. about the woods <laughs> you know he's 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 everywhere so he is an old friend of Reed's, an old military buddy of Reed's. And they tell Clyman that they're going to take Hastings Cutoff. And he goes, no, do not, under any circumstances, take that cutoff. Like, it was, there was in no uncertain terms. He was like, Mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't Mm -hmm. do it. He said, like, he described the geography. He said, there's absolutely no way. I've done this cutoff on horseback and I barely made it. There's no way you're going to be able to do it in a wagon, let alone... A hundred wagons. So do you think anyone listened? I would imagine that like people could have listened, but it it wouldn't matter anyway. But maybe nobody listened. You know who did listen? One and only. (gasps) Tamsin. Tamsin Donner. She's like, George, (laughs) no, 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 no. Because just don't. This is the listen to your wife episode. We'll get into that. (laughs) Woof, woof. Yeah. This isn't the decision time yet. They have another four to get to before they decide. For sure, mm-hmm. if they're going to take the cutoff. Here's some more hubris. They were supposed to reach Independence Rock before July 4th, right? So everybody's like partying there for the 4th of July. And then where are they on July 4th? Do we think they're at Independence Rock? No. <laughs> no, they are not. <laughs> they are still one week away. However, do you think they're not going to celebrate the birth of our nation the 4th of July oh you guys no they're gonna party their faces off they party so hard (laughs) together on the 4th of July they're shooting shotguns into the air just pouring whatever they drink rum I don't know down their gullets (laughs) they're partying Philly style very appropriately (laughs) yep Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at one point James Reed (laughs) I wish this was with Abe Lincoln but it wasn't although I don't know it could have been he had made this plan (laughs) with his friends he had this special bottle of brandy and so did his friends back where he's from so at the prearranged time he faced east and held up his cup to toast his friends in Illinois, and they, at the very same moment, were doing the same thing, while an old-time band played what was then called just music. (laughs) Wait, what's just music? (laughs) Like, old-time music is now just music. Oh, oh, I get it. It's just music. It's like, play a jam, you guys. Yeah, all right, okay. (laughs) That's lovely. I gotta say, I find that adorable yeah adorable if they weren't a week behind and about to (laughs) you know hubris 
adorably a bad idea. Yes. Incredible to be this confident. Yeah. And, you know, we have this image of like, you know, like the stern plotting group of people, but like they were partying. They were definitely having sex, not necessarily with people they were married to. You know, the women had condoms. They Mm -hmm. had medicines to induce abortion. They had ways to control pregnancy, but they were like living full lives. Mm -hmm. These aren't just Puritans. It's just a wild thing it's like honestly a giant real world oh my god (laughs) 80 people picked to live in a wagon train it does seem like burning man where you're living in this ad hoc community that's like going through a land that you think of as wilderness and think of as being in brand new because it is to you and i assume that there would be just a feeling of you know loosening of societal constraints for people and just not being surveilled the way that you were used to and maybe a kind of you know some euphoria mixed in with the whole all of the other flavors it's a human story which means it's all parts of the human story right so there they go oh, at least a week behind schedule plodding along and then a lone man on horseback approaches them from the distance ahead and he brings them a copy of a letter from Lansford Hastings and it says to meet him at Fort Bridger which is the next fort they're going to and that he will personally guide them Hmm. through the cutoff so they're really excited about that that revs their engines right back up about the the shortcut so then they eventually get to Fort Bridger where they have to make this decision and They're hanging out at Fort Bridger, lollygagging, as always. But something's happening that they don't know about that is the most sort of consequential moment. And that is that Lansford Hastings, a few days later, realized there's no way that I can take this group. It's not going to work. He sends a letter ahead to the two men who own Fort Bridger. They then are supposed to deliver the letter to the Donner Party, but instead... They keep it. They hold it. They don't deliver it. Because if the Donner Party gets across the pass and it becomes a real trail, they're going to make hella money. And if no one uses the cutoff, then their fort is going to fail because everybody's taking the upper pass. Mm -hmm. So because these guys out of perhaps desperation i don't know them but i don't think it's really forgivable doing that but you know so it's, it's yet again this kind of a cash grab at the expense of 80 people's lives and and whether they thought they'd make it or not i don't know but if they would have gotten that letter i do believe they wouldn't have gone because lansford hastings was the man that they moved toward always right his ideas and stuff so some split off some don't and they start on hastings cut off wow and how many start on hastings cut off how many head off the total that would get stranded eventually is 81. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's locked in Donner Party, 81, heading to California. All right. Almost immediately, they run into their first problem. And that problem is that on the trail, the trees are so thick that they actually can't move through the trees. So for two days, mm. men just spend the entire day chopping down trees and then moving like an inch forward. So they're still doing this. They're still oh going forward. They're cutting down trees. They're moving forward. They're moving like so insanely slow. Are they thinking like this forest will thin out and then we won't have to do this? Because it seems like a mathematical certainty that this won't work out for them. Each obstacle that they encounter 
they say, oh, this will probably be well, if we just get over this obstacle, it'll be fine. And then as soon as they get over mm. that obstacle, they f- see an obstacle that's way harder. Yeah, you weren't kidding about the Firefest thing. No, no, I was not kidding about the Firefest <laughs> thing. So right now they're in the Wasatch Mountains and that's mm-hmm. they're climbing mountains really steep that they have to sort of lock the wheels of the oxen and the oxen are pulling mm-hmm. their feet are slipping right it's 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 kind of a nightmare and at one point it's so steep that the oxen can't get a grip and suddenly a rope snapped that was holding up the wagon and it just cartwheeled over itself oxen and all until it fell off a cliff oh god And is this in what is now Utah? Not quite yet. This is we're getting really close to Utah at this point. Hmm. Tamsin Donner, bless her heart, sees something in the brush and she puts together this letter that Lansford Hastings had left for whoever was following because he ended up leaving because I didn't mention that, but he ended up leaving before the Donner party got there because they were so late. (laughs) They kept texting him and they were like, on my way, but they were still drying their hair. Yeah. She puts together this letter, realizes it's from Lansford Hastings, and it says, two days, two nights, hard driving, cross desert, reach water. Mm. So what they're about to cross is the Great Salt Lake Desert in Utah Mm -hmm. that they have to cross 80 miles of, right? With no water and nothing. They have to bring everything with them. So they like fill all their barrels full of water at the spring. Yeah. They walk for 24 hours straight with, and the wind is blowing salt in their faces, cracking their lips. They're getting like blinded by the sun, glinting off the salt during the day. And at night, they're just like so cold. Right. And they're kind of like don't know where they are because it's just this like flat expanse that is like producing like visions for certain people like mirages. And then Mm -hmm. just all hell breaks loose and it starts to feel like a bad mushroom trip. Like the cattle are just running. They're gone. They're gone into the distance. They start freaking out because they don't have water and they're all sinking into this salt crust and they can't move and they're like in this gummy mass and trying to plod forward Mm -hmm. and they're leaving their wagons and they just start Mm -hmm. on foot. They're losing all their oxen. People are trying to go forward to get water. It's just absolute pandemonium and it takes A total of five and a half days to get across the desert. Oh, my God. And did people die of thirst on the way? Did they have casualties? No, I don't think anybody died. They were really, really resourceful. Like at one point it was freezing that night and they piled the children under all of the blankets and then they put all the dogs on top of the kids to keep everybody (laughs) warm. Their dogs were named Tyler Barney, Trailer Tracker and Cash. Tyler, Barney, Trailer, Tracker, and Cash. Those also sound like Sarah Palin's kids. Oh, my God. (laughs) But in the best way possible. (laughs) That was a good one. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Then when they finally get out, they stay another week just trying to get over that bad mushroom trip. It's like, you know what? You got to take time for self-care. So, yeah. Uh, mm. (laughs) But, you know, in their defense, they had left like a bunch of their wagons and their cattle was all gone. Yeah. So they were trying to go and collect what they could because the cattle is their food. Mm. And so once you lose oxen, you're also losing like probably your primary food source, which is scary. And also sad because maybe the kids love those oxen. I, yeah, oxen seem very nice. I, so. I always got oxen in the Oregon Trail game. The two things I learned was like get oxen for your mm-hmm. draft animals oh, yeah. and 
for God's sake, don't caulk your wagon when you go across the river. Just pay for the ferry, even though it seems too expensive. You know, it's more expensive. Your wagon sinking. (laughs) (laughs) Buy the insurance for your rental car. (laughs) That was a good life lesson. It's like if you can afford it, like do the safer thing, even if you you don't want to. Yep. So, yeah, at this point. Things are kind of fracturing where there was Mm -hmm. like a pretty decent bonds. You know, people still fought and everything. But there was some fusion between this group of of shared goals. And, you know, we're going to get along. We have to get along like the real world. (laughs) All right. So then we have a big drama happen where James Reed gets in a fight with this guy named John Snyder, who's like very beloved in the group. He is known for like getting up and dancing and shooing and violin and, and doing all the kind of stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. people love it. They're trying to get up yet another hill with their oxen and Snyder is like screwing up Reed's oxen in some way. There's mm-hmm. a mess that happens. And then they pull out weapons. Snyder hits James Reed on the head with his bullwhip, and then James Reed pulls out a knife and stabs him in the heart. Jesus! He dies, yes. He's immediately remorseful, allegedly. (laughs) There is a split in the recollections of people who were there who say it was in self-defense or it was murder. So we'll never know. I'm sure that is the kind of thing where like, yeah, the different eyewitnesses would have different reads of the situation huh? based on, <laughs> you know, their impressions of the the two principles going into it. But wow. Yeah. And, and at this point, how long have they been on the trail? Well, let's see. This is October and they began in, they left like late, right? They left May 12th. Okay. Almost five months. Yeah, so this is a long time. They're crossing hundreds and hundreds of miles. It's wild. And at this point, this is like a very bad thing to happen, especially because James Reed, as horrible as he is, has kind of emerged as like a leader. Hmm. So they have a little trial because they were very democratic, very democratic. Oh, wow. I'm impressed by that. It was like democracy was real important. Yeah, we used to love that in America. I don't know when we stopped. Yeah, I don't know when that happened. Now we're like very against it. (laughs) I know. I know. It's weird. They have their little trial. You know, some people want him excommunicated. Some people want him forgiven. One person, Louis Kiesberg, wants him to be hanged. Mm. And Louis Kiesberg is... The Donner Party's ultimate villain. So Mm. keep that name in your head. Louis Kiesberg. Okay. I'm thinking of like Paul Dano in uh, There Will Be Blood, where it's like, oh, having a nice boy face has turned you twisted inside. He still looks too young. Kiesberg's like, I'll show you a picture of him. He looks like a ghoul. (laughs) (laughs) He just doesn't look good. Okay. So they decide to banish him. Shit. So they give him just a horse and say, get the fuck out of here. Wow. The funny part is that the Donner Party had chosen to move ahead because they were able to move at a faster pace. So they had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. James Reed just clopped up on his horse and (laughs) they were like, oh, hey, hey, James, and had no idea what was going on. So he got to, you know, kick it with them and get some more supplies and stuff before he said he was like, I'm going to move forward so that I can get us extra rations and bring it, bring them back. But really, he was just gone. He's gone forever. I'm going to go up ahead now for I'm, you know, not a murderer reasons. And like I'm a hero because I'm going to go get rations. (laughs) Wow. So well played. Yeah. Lucky for him, I'll say. 
So then they come across a Paiute tribe and the relationship is so complicated between the wagon trains and indigenous people. In some ways, it's not complicated at all, obviously, Mm -hmm. like get the fuck out of here. But the relationships were really different. And a lot of times attacks that happened on wagon trains from different tribes were retaliation for Mm -hmm. things that happened with other wagon trains that are now up the trail. So basically... A lot more of their oxen are stolen as they're crossing Paiute land. Mm A hundred cattle are gone at this point, just in this stint. So they're running out of food. They're running out of provisions. Mm -hmm. Like at this point, they know they're in trouble. And so they're sending people ahead to get supplies. And Mm -hmm. then Charles Stanton is one of the guys from the Donner Party who went ahead and he brought back two Miwok guides. And that was a tribe that was local to the area that had a good sense of how to get around. And everybody says, hey, guys, it's not going to snow till November. Got a haul and maybe we can get across before the snow. Mm -hmm. So they're feeling okay about that. And then somebody dies, accidentally shot Mm -hmm. a young man. They're all standing around his grave very, very sad. This, you know, there haven't been a lot of deaths yet. Mm-hmm. And just as they're all looking down at him, they start to feel on their skin like the first snow. Mm. And they just look up at the sky and they know. I bet. I mean, there is something so enduringly fascinating to me about the power of snow, you know, that it is this sort of silent, powerful and deadly the same way that like the desert or the ocean or a mountain is. We talked about this in the the Outlaw Pass episode not long ago, just how to humans, one of the scariest things is not like somebody is out there to get you, but like, oh, nature doesn't care. Nature has no thoughts about you at all. And this through a combination of various factors, like you will just get completely screwed by this very picturesque thing. They camp that night hoping, oh, it's just a fluke, just a little bit of snow. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning, and in the description is that is that their heads start popping up out of the snow like prairie dogs. Wow. So it literally had snowed so much that night that everything was buried. Oh, God. That was like the first big winter storm, six feet or something like that. And at that point, they panic. They're like, "Okay, what do we do? If we don't keep going, we're going to have to make camp. Some people want to make camp and hope for this to pass or just say we're not going to make it. We have to make camp for the winter until the snow melts. So they decide to stay because They move a little bit forward. They're like, there's no way. They're just sinking, everything's sinking into the snow. They can't pull oxen through. They can't do anything like that. So they set up three camps and they're all set up pretty far away from each other, which is like shows you kind of how they were done with each other. Like one's a mile away from the Mm -hmm. other. Oh, Jesus. Some of the families find these old log cabins that were there from a previous person, but they're real crappy. They kind of make them into something livable. Keysburg builds like a lean to against the cabin and tries to use, Hmm. you know, oxide and all different stuff to to create a roof. There's another one that is tents that they made kind of, Hmm. but each one of these has like 20 people in it. So this storm that they're preparing for lasts for 18 days of just snow, snow, snow. Mm -hmm. And at this point, their oxen all run away or they're buried under snow. They don't have any 
food left. Mm-hmm. So everybody's just stuck here. And and at some point they're eating their shoes like they boil the leather from their shoes to eat they take the bones of the oxen and they boil them and drink the broth and boil them again and drink the broth until they're like mush and then you know they're eating the mush of the bones sometimes the bones are like turned into dust that they eat they're eating the carpet yeah anything that's made from anything organic they're eating because there's just nothing and they you know they have some oxen they're saving it they're trying to do this but it just they see that there's like no hope I always thought that a boil leather shoe could be relatively appetizing. And then I watched Werner Herzog eats his shoe. What did it look like? It, it's like it sucked up all the water and it came out looking like black. But he did eat it because <laughs> he's he's a champ. It's creative. You know, you're doing what you have to do. They're eating the ox hides, but they have to be careful because that's also the roof. This is the only part I've retained any memory of, by the way, because this is what I fictionalized. I mm-hmm. was like, they were eating the ox hides, which were also the roof. Like, that's all, which of course I remember something that is both very grim and also about interior decor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Little missions have been like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go get help without the wagon train, you know, on horseback or on foot or whatever and Mm -hmm. keep failing. You know, there's about three tries. They get a mile and they're like, we can't do this. It's not possible. So finally in December, they're just like something has to happen. And so Franklin Graves, he is real smart. He fashions a bunch of snowshoes out of wagon parts and tree limbs and whatever, right? And they work. They actually work really well. And hmm. people can walk on top of the snow. It's not easy. They're heavy and cumbersome, but it. But they can stay on top of the snow. So they decide, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to get out of here no matter what it takes because more than half of the Donner Party was children. Mm. The mothers and the fathers like have this will to keep going that like a lot of people have pointed out probably was the thing that kept them alive, right? Because they had something else they were responsible for. And so there's this this like real dedication to saving the children, <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. in a good way. For once. For once, right. So... 17 people decide to go on what's eventually called the Forlorn Hope. Mm -hmm. It's 17 men, women, and children, like people who were strong enough to go, who said, I will do this, who just couldn't bear to stay there anymore. Like anything's better than sitting in this cabin watching people starve to death, right? So they set out, they strap on their snowshoes, they take six days rations, rifle, blanket, hatchet, pistols, and they say, okay, let's go. And imagine this, you're in a snowshoe and the snowshoe is so difficult to lift already because you're in 12 Mm -hmm. feet of snow and you're barely floating on top and you have to climb a hill. So you have to take your snowshoe, you have to jam it into the side of the hill and lift yourself up and then jam your other one to the side and lift yourself up. And it's taking forever and you're moving so slow. And during the day, the sun is like Mm -hmm. beating down at this point and it's hot because of the sun and they're going snow blind, which is something that happens when, Mm -hmm. you know, there was no sunglasses back then and it causes all kinds of symptoms and makes you feel like you can go kind of nuts and and have all these physical symptoms. At night, they're freezing. Obviously, it's so cold. Then during the day, they become really, really hot because they're walking and doing all these things and their clothes are just Mm -hmm. covered in sweat over and over again and then they're freezing and it's just this like, 
never ending onslaught of discomforts that you and I just don't <laughs> have an experience. I guess I shouldn't speak for you, Sarah. I don't know if you've ever been. Yeah, I have not been in a wagon train situation. Yeah, I got a splinter the other day. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like I had heartburn the other night. <laughs> I was like, please, God, make it stop my heartburn. I've camped when I'm too cold and I've done like the shiver yeah. at night and just like the way your body feels in the morning, like really stiff. If you just don't have, you know, if it's colder than you think it's going to be and just times that by every day four weeks. Yeah, it's just something that I can't understand or imagine. And a lot of times when I'm having my problems and I don't think I'm not suggesting this, but a lot of times when I'm having one of my little problems, I'm like, if the Donner Party can get through that, then I might be able to, you know, get over a mean thing something said on the Internet. I can wait in this line at the DMV. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll survive. God. Yeah. Well, and also, like, what are they eating? Like, are there is there any game at all? Yeah. Well, not really. At mm-hmm. one point, they end up being able to shoot a deer and they're so hungry and desperate that when they run over, they just drink the blood right out of the deer. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's going on is that they're slowly actually making enough progress where things are warming up. There's still snow and everything. But what starts happening to them is that The brush they are beginning to encounter is so thick and their clothes are so like rotted that it's actually like ripping their clothes off. Oh, God. Yeah. So they're like not wearing a full amount of clothes. They don't have shoes. They ate their shoes. Yeah. So then everybody just starts going a little bit like losing it and they Mm -hmm. start to decide we need to draw straws because we have to eat somebody. Well, it occurs to me, first of all, that in that situation, it's an interesting move because You said there's children on this, and I assume they're like relatively old kids Mm -hmm. because they're able-bodied enough to do this. But it is like interesting that we've reached the point where it's like everybody gets a straw. Children are not exempt from getting eaten. No, they were. It was just the guys. Don't worry. Oh, it was just the guys. Okay, yeah, because we would never eat a woman. Yeah. Patrick Dolan is the guy who says, we got to draw straws. Let's go. We got to get this going. Guess who draws the straw? Patrick Dolan. Oh, Patrick. Patrick Dolan. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And then he's like, well, maybe. Well, hold on. (laughs) Come on, you guys. That wasn't serious. But then they end up like having enough kind of humanity to say, okay, we're not going to do that. We're not going to murder this guy. And they knew that like someone was going to die soon yeah if death is so all around you like why take it into your own hands when you can just let it do its thing and they didn't want to most of us don't want to commit murder that's my weird hypothesis about people right so that night after the straw drawing it's just one of those hits just Mm -hmm. keep on coming stories and for some reason this sticks in my head so much Mm. as one of the worst moments and that the way that they had to keep warm was they had to cut down pine branches as they went Mm -hmm. and build fires every single night right so every night the guys the men are cutting wood building a fire this night he's chopping wood and suddenly the hatchet head flies off and is immediately lost in the snow no 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 oh my god Uh, That's the reaction that I had when I first heard the story. I think this is so stressful because it's so relatable as like somebody who like tends to drop her keys. You're just never getting it back. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. That's horrible. 
I know. And so that night, the only thing they could do is they would light entire trees on fire. Wow. And like branches would just fall. And it was just like, this is what we're doing. We're just here, like around this fire. The first person to die is Franklin Graves. And he has Mm -hmm. several kids and he tells them to eat him. He tells his family or like everybody? No, he tells his daughters. I would prefer to be eaten by family. So that makes sense to me. Well, that's something that's really interesting that you say that. And I'll get to that in a second. So they don't do that right away, but they're still in this. They're staying in the same place right now. So. Right. And they just put them on ice. They thank you. They put them right on ice. So then the next person is Patrick Dolan, straw drawn Patrick. He Mm. is like ranting deliriously. That thing happens. And I think you guys talked about it in the Dyatlov Pass episode. But correct me if I'm wrong, where when you start to get so cold that you rip all your clothes off right so he's doing that thing the paradoxical undressing yes there it is paradoxical undressing runs into the woods passes away that's the next person Mm -hmm. what they generally did is that once the people were made into something that could be eaten they would always kind of make sure that no one was eating their own family so they Mm. would like they created a system because that was like very important to people that Hmm. They don't consume their own family members for whatever for whatever reason. But I guess you're different. Well, (laughs) I'm ghoulish. Well, it's interesting because like my first thought was like, oh, that's nice. Like if you want your children to be sustained by the calories inside you, then it would make sense that you would. I mean, as with funerals, it's all about what the living desire. Yeah, I do know that they used a similar system to that in the Uruguayan rugby team that crashed in the Andes. Oh, they der- really? Yeah, they derived a system where there were like people who were in charge of like butchering, I guess, the harvesting the meat from the people who had died and then of, you know, making sure that like nobody, I think actually what they were doing was making sure nobody knew who they were eating, mm-hmm. keeping it anonymized kind of in the way that you know, executions are actually where people didn't have to have a feeling of responsibility. And just, yeah, the the degree of organization that they were able to have is very impressive. There's still, at this point, a lot of intention. I think it kind of bothers me that we have this as a story of like, what a creepy, gruesome, unbelievable thing. It's so creepy and gross. Really, these stories about people being extremely compassionate and intentional, as you said, like in this extreme situation where maybe we expect them to have just like gone on a cannibalistic free for all. And it's like, no, there was like a lot of care and a lot of love really going into this. And something we don't know how we would react in this situation. You know, oh, I'd never eat someone like, yeah, you would. I've never said that about myself. I've never said that either. Yeah, it's thank you. (laughs) And it's like, if I don't eat, then my children that are my life are like when you shouldn't be horribly harmed at minimum. You know, it's like this is also why my favorite one of my favorite horror movies is Open Water 2, because it's about people who like jump off of a yacht and then nobody remembered to put the stairs down. And so <laughs> they like start fighting. A bunch of people just like give up, basically. And the sole survivor is a mom who has a baby on the boat. And she's just like, yeah, I just can't. I just have to survive. I just have to. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's just an an instinctual thing, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then a 13-year-old kid is an, the next person to start to like lose 
it a little bit. So at one point, this kid sees a mouse. He grabs it in his bare hand and just shoves it in his mouth and eats it whole. Right. Mm-hmm. He's so it's, this is where we're at. And then that night, it's like it's like just eating that mouse made him feel made his system start going. So he was found like oh. chewing on people's arms and saying, give me my bone. Yeah. Very scary. And then he ends up dying as well. And so they prepare the meat of him. Now Franklin Graves, Patrick Dolan. So they have that to share between them for a while. They try to continue on. The only people who refuse, and I didn't mention that they were on this this Forlorn Hope mission, is Lewis and Salvador, the two Miwok guides. Mm. So they say, we're not eating people. They turn their backs. They leave because one of the guys who brought them back, who has developed a relationship, is like, look, I think that they're going to kill you. You need to go. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, who are these people mm-hmm. going to look toward first is not the non-white people. So Lewis and Salvador leave because they're like, fuck this. And they know the lay of the land. And they're like, we don't have to show you anything anymore. So they leave. But then they end up being found later by one of the people who does not have that compassion mm-hmm. and in the story lewis and salvador are so close to death that it didn't matter either way that charles stanton ended up murdering these two miwok mm. you know I, I have to assume that neither of us believe this near death anyway story like okay it's awfully convenient yeah yeah, maybe if they're near death, you could like give them some of the other meat or something. I don't know. <laughs> so at this point, there is seven people left in the Forlorn Hope, and wow. all five of the women are alive. None of the women died on the Forlorn Hope, hmm. but only two men lived. And I assume that that like, you know, that there was some amount or like a combination of women and children first, plus just the idea of like women as primary caregiver or as you know the entire caregiver and just like well we got to keep you alive because then Hiram Jr. will make it yeah exactly yeah exactly so okay the snow is melted enough that they can start to see the ground and imagine that like just that relief alone of like yeah and they realize they're out of the worst part at least and then they see a human footprint hmm so they follow these footprints until they get to a trail and they actually come to what I believe the pronunciation mm-hmm. is, is the Maidu tribe. And they are just overcome by seeing any type of sign of human life. Right. And you see running in just seven people mm-hmm. who are in tatters and are like, described again and again as ghoulish Hmm. you know is the word they're using and and they terrified the children the children thought they were monsters from the way that they looked right i'm picturing the dancers in thriller (laughs) yeah (laughs) so the tribe like you know welcomes them in and is like okay we're gonna we're gonna help you and they make them this acorn mush that is kind of their staple food and hear this one of the guys is too grossed out to eat it he says i don't like it (laughs) (gasps) sir he didn't like the acorn mush and it wasn't enough 
to sustain them. Right. They needed more food than that. So then some volunteers from the tribe, they say, okay, we'll take you to Johnson's Ranch because that's where they need to get to. That's the closest ranch that can give them supplies and then can kind of send word forth that, that there needs to be rescue teams to come in. So they get there. The West is like buzzing with this news mm-hmm. and then they start forming reliefs and Mm. people are just in the same dire straits back at the camps. There's been cannibalism. Mm. Like you said, it's debated who ate people. Mm. An archaeologist group did a study of all of the remains and they Mm. couldn't find any evidence of cannibalism. I personally definitely think the cannibalism happened because I don't really understand the point of making that up because it like ruined all of their lives, you know, right. like the people that admitted to it. Um, and it's pretty well established that people ate each other, at least at least on the forlorn hope. We know that that yeah. happened, but maybe not back at the camps. But yeah, it's like the first relief gets there and people like, take my kids, mm-hmm. take my kids, take all the healthiest people. There's actually three reliefs that come through eventually. So it takes a mm-hmm. long time to get everybody out. It takes a really long time. And actually, John Sutter did help fund these missions. So that's the one good thing he ever did in his life, <laughs> in his miserable life. <laughs> Lewis Kiesberg, our villain, is left along with Tams and Donner, who decided to mm-hmm. let her kids go ahead and to stay behind because George, her husband, George Donner, had at one point cut his hand and it was so infected that he was going to die. You know, because if you got an infection back then, you just died. That was it. You could rub a cobweb on it. You're like, if only there was some kind of topical cream I could put on this. You guys got any CBD (laughs) cream? (laughs) So she just couldn't bear to leave him. And that's beautiful. I I do understand that. So when they left, Tamsin Mm -hmm. was with her husband, and Louis Kiesberg was also there, and a few other people as well who, for whatever reason, couldn't have gone with the other reliefs. When they get there, Kiesberg is eating <gasps> Tamsin Donner. No. Yes. George had died. And so the greatest mystery of the Donner party is, was Tamsin Donner murdered or did she die on her own? Yeah. Louis Kiesberg says that she died and that he ate her because he had to. But, of course, it's up for debate. But I'd like to read to you really quick the first report of the people who wrote about what they saw at the Donner Party. And this went out to everybody who read the newspaper. (laughs) The bones of those who had died had been devoured by the miserable ones that still survived around their tents and cabins. Bodies of men, women, and children with half the flesh torn from them lay on every side. A woman sat by the side and body of her dead husband cutting out his tongue. The heart she had already taken out, broiled and eaten. Broiled? Not the way you do it. The daughter was seen eating the father, the mother, that of her children, the father of the mother, the emaciated, wild and ghastly appearance of the survivors added to the horror of it. So changed had the immigrants become that when the rescue party arrived with food, some of them cast it aside and seemed to prefer the putrid human flesh that still remained. Right. That is kind of the the image or the idea that I feel like we still need to counteract which is just like yeah everybody gets like had a giant like corpse eating party they just got super into it and just like this image of people like surrounded by bones and like and specifically eating your own husband yeah what is your response though to that 
Well, that's exactly what it was. It was, you know, a guy being like, I can get a bunch of attention if I tell this story in a way exaggerated way. And I mean, there were human body parts Mm -hmm. around. He said something like the day before the party arrived, one emigrant took the body of a child about four years of age in bed with him and devoured the whole thing before morning. And the next day he ate another about the same age before noon. So he's eating two entire kids in one day. You can't do that. It shows how a story can take on a life of its own so fast and become far more than itself and take true details like the fact that I mean it's gruesome enough that there were bones around and there but to to turn them into these these people who can eat an entire child and and seem to have no empathy and and seem to have not done this as an absolute absolute last resort you know it, it was there was not a moment's joy taken in this it was the most shameful moment of anyone's life yeah which really Reminds me of, you know, a question I ask myself a lot, which is like, why do we manufacture these stories? Like, why do we so often turn stories that are really just sad into stories where there's a sort of sensationalistic evil at the center of it? And is based on this idea of like, yeah, like, if given the opportunity, people really want to kill you and like eat a whole four year old. Yeah. Yeah. And just this idea of like, people have become something else. And I can see why that's comforting that like there's a certain amount of trauma that you withstand. And at a certain point, you just turn, you become not human. And it's like, no, you're just like stuck being a human who's like very sadly subsisting on the bodies of your dead companions. It's like you're the most human. Yeah, you're the most human in tragedy. It's a story that like shows the limitlessness of the ability to survive if you have Mm -hmm. a reason Hmm. And I think that we focus so much on on the bad things that they did to survive. We don't think about the things that the ways that they helped each other. They did everything they could before. Right. It's one of the first stories that I feel like we can really see the sensationalized true crime aspects of it. Wow. I mentioned before that that Charles McGlashan was the first person to kind of write almost a you're wrong about you're wrong about Ian book. <laughs> One part is that he believed Lewis Kiesberg to be innocent because when Lewis yeah. Kiesberg came back, he was the villain. Like he was a cannibal. He sued somebody over like calling him a cannibal. There was like a whole drama about Lewis Kiesberg trying to clear his name and being this like huge Western pariah. And then McGlashan is like, didn't think that was true. So he got Eliza Donner, who is Tamsin Donner's daughter, together with Kiesberg. And Kiesberg got on his knees, crying his eyes out to Eliza Donner and said, I did not kill your mom. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then she believed him. They like buried that together. But, you know, of course, we'll never really know because Tamsin Donner's diary is lost. Oh, no. Oh, God. I bet somebody ate it. Well, it might be under the they think it's under the monument that they built on Donner Lake Hmm. to the Donner Party because they built it where they thought the cabin was. But it turned out that that was where the people buried all the artifacts and bodies. The secrets lie underneath the giant monument. That seems appropriate. And that is most of the Donner Party story. Enjoy isn't the right word here, but to me, there's something very sustaining at looking at these stories where the worst case scenario comes true. And then we see, you know, all of the avarice and cowardice and various seven deadly sins on display. And yet, like alongside that, there's always 
people making hard choices with love and dignity. And I don't know, I think maybe that we are like ashamed of our survival instinct as humans or like we associate it with like the desire to trample other people to save ourselves. And certainly there's no shortage of that behavior on planet Earth. But as we move into the future, like we're going to find ourselves in more survival situations and we will join people in history who've done the same and, and we will find that we stay human the whole time. And, you know, they, they point out that that was the moment that things kind of fell apart was when the fragmentation started. And, and his, some historians say things could have gone a lot better if they had mm. been able to stay in some kind of solidarity which if that's not a lesson for these times i don't know what is (laughs) exactly and that was our episode thank you for listening thank you so much to chelsea weber smith for explaining this chapter of history to us I hope you have a better sense of America based on this episode. Not that you think any particular thing about it, just that you feel like you understand it a little bit more. You can find much more Chelsea Weber Smith at their podcast, American Hysteria, or on Twitter at Amer Hysteria, where they are always a barrel of fun. Once again, if you want bonus episodes, including a couple with Chelsea, you can find them at patreon.com slash you're wrong about or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to Chase Potter for editing this week. Thank you so much, as always, to producer extraordinaire Carolyn Kendrick. See you in two weeks.